at least in its, um, in, as the institution of the Roman church, it had gone into apostasy. Of course, we know that God had preserved his church, and there were 7,000 who were worshiping him all around Europe during this time, but Martin Luther understood that the Catholic church, the Roman church, had compromised with the gospel. And he called the church to exam extremely supreme, um, of supreme importance, issues of supreme importance to the church, theological issues that were going on in the church. And one of them was that the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. At the center of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the affirmation that the righteousness in which we stand before a holy God is not our own righteousness, but it's a righteousness that is foreign to us. It's an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that Luther called extra nose, a righteousness that's apart from us. And of course, what he proclaimed and what the whole Bible proclaims is that this, this righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Righteousness which is imputed for those who put their trust in him. It's imputed for, imputed for you, imputed for me, for those who come in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This doctrine is such a major doctrine that it's in this doctrine that our church will stand or fall in being a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If a church understands the answer, how can I be made right with a holy God through this justification, through this faith alone in Christ Jesus, that's a true church. You can compromise, you can still be misled in some areas of theology, but you can still preach a true gospel in that area, but if you compromise in this area, everything else is lost. We need clarity in the gospel, and in the same way that Luther needed that in his church in his time, we need that today. We as Christians need to uphold this doctrine of justification by faith alone, that the righteousness in which we stand before God is not our own, but it's the righteousness of Christ. Uh, and this parable in Luke 18 maybe among all the parables Jesus taught, maybe the most explicit in presenting this truth of justification by faith alone. Jesus does that as he always does, uh, with pro, with, in, pro, in a profound uh, level, and with simplicity, and yet clarity and power. So let's uh, read the passage, only uh, six verses, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of the tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have preserved your people throughout history. 
you have promised to save your people from their sins. You have accomplished that on the cross. And we thank you that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find ourselves here today justified before you. We can come and worship you, the one true and living God, not based on anything that comes from us, but because we know we have been rescued by your grace, by your love, and by what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. We thank you for the beauty of your word. We thank you for the beauty of the work of your salvation for us. And we pray that we would leave this church today more grateful than we were when we walked in as we reflect on the truths of the atonement of Christ for our sins. We ask this in his name. Amen. If you look at verse 9, the very beginning of this parable, Luke introduces this parable to us saying that Jesus told this parable to some who were doing two things. There are two aspects to the audience Jesus is speaking to you here. The first one is that they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And they treated others with contempt. As we'll see, this is always the case. Always the case. And I try to be careful when I use the word always. Uh, there are often exceptions to things in life, but this is always the case. Anyone, as we notice later on going through this parable, who trusts themselves to be righteous before God, the only way they can accomplish that is by putting others down. They need that. It's necessary for you to find yourself justified that you would look down on others. So he starts uh, his parable, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. One of the challenges of studying this parable today is that the stereotypes have flipped. For us today, we're used to read our Bibles and the Pharisees are the bad guys in the New Testament. They were opposed to Jesus in his ministry. They did not accept that he would uh, relate to the sinners and that he would eat with the poor and, and the tax collector and, and the harlots and the thieves. They were the obnoxious ones, as we see in this passage, who prays a prayer, uh, extremely arrogant of a prayer. None of us would do that today. And the challenge here is two things. First, to be able to abstract from this and understand what Jesus is doing in the context of his original audience, which saw the Pharisee as the most noble person you could find in society. And as you take a step back and do that, you will find yourself being able to see that this is a reality not only in the New Testament. Of course, no one would pray like this anymore. We know that the, the, the new polite, um, the, the polite way to do what the Pharisee is doing is to actually saying humble things and saying that others are better than yourself and putting yourself down. But we see that the core of what's going on with the Pharisee here, the issue of pride and self-righteousness is something still present uh, in our world and even in our churches today. Well, let's go back to the original audience, the Pharisees. The, the movement of the Pharisees was actually a very well-intended movement to start with. Uh, the Pharisees were the ones who were seeking purity. The reason they started this sect inside Judaism, there are many of them, was looking back, as they looked back to the history of Israel and realized all the compromise and all the backsliding that Israel lived through Old Testament history, something that you can see in your own Bible. How many times did Israel, whether in the desert or in the promised land, left, 
stopped worshiping the one true God and brought along all these other false gods, pagan nations from the Can gods from the Canaanites, pagan gods from um, Babylon, and, and they brought those thing in, things in to their own worship. The Pharisees were committed not to let that happen in this context where now you have the Roman Empire dominating over Israel, you have the Greek influence, the Hellenists, and they're committed not to go in those directions. They want to know the word, they want to study the word, and they want to follow every single aspect of that word. In one sense, we need more of that today. Um, as we'll see, this is not the problem with the Pharisees. Again, they started in a good direction. They were not as mystical as the Essenes. The Essenes were uh, the other, other sect of Judaism in the first century. If you have, have ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, those are a recent discovery where we find all these um, manuscripts in caves around the Dead Sea. And we believe that that was a region where this, these groups, the Essenes, would live. They would take themselves away from Jerusalem, away from the city, because they wanted to stay pure. And they would come to these communities outside. We believe that John the Baptist uh, sounds a lot like one of these men. He would just try to isolate himself and stay pure that way. Well, and of course, they were ascetics, and they lived in these communal groups. But the Pharisees didn't fall into that kind of direction. They were very good at practicing purity and to practicing their faith in the real world, which is what God actually wants us to do. God doesn't want us to just go away. Uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, many monks made, committed the same mistake by believing that by going to the woods and just cutting themselves and doing all these things, isolating themselves, they would protect themselves from the world and isolating from sin. Jesus is very clear. Our heart is the issue of our sinfulness. Isolating ourselves is not going to help. If anything, we need more to be involved with the church and with community if we want to find ourselves pure. Uh, so they didn't fall into that trap of the Essenes, but neither were they like the Sadducees, who were the liberals at that time. They were the ones uh, skeptical about anything supernatural. Resurrection, angels, you know, are those things, afterlife, they didn't really believe in those things, but the Pharisees were committed to believing every single thing they found in the Old Testament. They were not uh, as extreme as, as the Zealots, who are the political ones. They believe that by overcoming the, fighting the Roman Empire and freeing themselves from the oppression of the Romans, they would finally be independent and able to practice their religion. The Messiah would come to do exactly that, to deliver them from the oppression of the Romans. But the Pharisees were faithful in that sense. They didn't trust, they didn't exchange um, the truths of the word for political movements. They were uh, sticking to the word of God, and they're committed to obeying the word of God. And that's why, for the original audience, of course, who only could see the outside, what those men were doing, they committed these men. They, these are good people. These are the example uh, we need to follow. On the other hand, the tax collectors, the tax collectors were the traitors among the Jews. As I said before, you are being oppressed by th these Romans who came and took everything and said, okay, if you want to stay in your own land, now you're going to have to pay taxes. You're going to follow our rules. And if any of our soldiers ask you to go a mile, remember them, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has walked to go another one. Uh, that was the idea that the Roman Empire had all these ways to, to abuse the, the people and to take advantage of them. And now the tax collectors are the ones who are 
volunteering themselves to go and take the money from their own people and give to the Roman Empire. We know, of course, that it doesn't stop there. The tax collectors were also included in the, in the group of sinners uh, with the harlots and thieves because they would not only get what they needed to get for the Roman Empire, but they would ask for a lot more. And they were known as people, as extortioners. One of the things that the Pharisees later on will pray, thank God I'm not like these other people, extortioners, unjust, adulterous, these tax collectors. So the expectation here as Jesus starts teaching this parable, and he says these two men into, went into the temple to pray. Remember, temple here is more than a church for us today. When we think of a church, we think of the, the place where we gather as the people of God. But the church is us. The Holy Spirit is not in this building necessarily, but it's in our hearts as we worship together. It was not quite that way here in uh, in this scenario, here we have a place before the new covenant where still the temple really represents the very presence of God. The place where uh, God dwells is in his temple. Uh, God tells Solomon that the prayers that were directed from the, to the temple of God, God would hear those prayers. And uh, that's still part of here. So, so as these two men come into the temple to pray, these people are thinking, what? Why is this tax collector even bothering? He thinks that he's going to be heard. He thinks he's coming to the temple, he'll be heard by God. He can't be here. And uh, they had those assumptions already in their minds. Uh, notice, of course, that the issue, as we'll see the conclusion of this parable, is actually an issue of the heart. Um, it is true that one of these men was accepted, and the other man was not accepted in his worship. Uh, this is just part of the visible church. If you go back to Genesis, Cain and Abel both offer sacrifices, uh, not sacrifices, offerings, in the same place. One was accepted, the other was not. In this parable, we see the same thing. One was accepted, the other was not. Even here in our churches, we don't know. God knows the heart, but we can't see really who is accepted and who is not, but God who sees the heart. And this is what Jesus is trying to show, is that these Pharisees, with all the good things that they had brought to the table, they were not worshiping God from a sincere heart. And that is why this parable is so important for all of us here this morning. Are we worshiping our Lord from our heart? Are we coming to God and repenting from our sins and understanding that our righteousness is the righteousness of Christ as we come to him in repentance and looking not to ourselves, but looking at what Christ has done for us at the cross? Um, verse 11 says, The Pharisee standing by himself pray thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like these, like other man. Literally hear the expression, uh, like the rest of man, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He knows how to pray the right way. Notice that he starts his prayer saying thanks, right? How many of us uh, used to pray, you just ask things, you're just asking, and someone at some point said, hey, maybe you can be a little more thankful, maybe you can start with thanks, and praise God, and, and then you can move to your petitions, let's follow the, the, the prayer that the Lord taught us to pray, but the other issue here is that we don't see, if we think of the Lord's prayer, Father forgives our debts as we forgive our debtors, we don't see that here, and even while we see the thankfulness and the praise, it's to himself, even when he says thanks, it's not thanking God, but, but thanking God for what he is, not for what God has done. This is not really a praise to God, but a praise to himself. Not true prayer. 
the Pharisee, it says that he stands by himself. So he's autonomous in what he's doing. He comes before the temple. And as we'll contrast later with the tax collector, he seems to go all the way closer to uh, the inner court. Uh, if you think of the temple in the Old Testament, you have the outer courts and then the inner courts where you get closer to the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God dwelled in there. And this man goes straight up and he's praying, he's praying out loud. But if this man had actually prayed to God, we know that this would not be the kind of prayer he would be praying. When we look back in scripture and see all the people who faced this, the, the holiness of God and understood who God is and prayed and spoke to God according to who he truly is, the true and living God, they actually fell apart. Isaiah, in chapter 6, uh, when he sees the throne of God, he says, in the year of King Uzziah, this is Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, in the year of King that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is the throne of God, the very presence of God, even the cherubim cannot withstand the very presence of God and they have to cover their face and their feet to be before the presence of God. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me for I am lost. The older translation says, I am undone. The holiness of God is consuming who I am as a mortal. Not only his mortality, but I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. If anyone had been called to represent the people of God before the throne of God, in this time when King Uzziah had died, that person would have been Isaiah, no one else. He was the best. Comparing people, he was number one to go represent the people before God. And yet, he says, I am a man of unclean lips, dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Uh, Peter himself in Luke 5, verse 8 says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. This is after Jesus had um, told him about which direction to fish. Uh, and, and he wasn't finding any fish before. Now he finally finds and he realizes this is the Messiah. This is God. There's something about this man that is different. He says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Depart from me. That's the reaction of a sinner when it comes to the presence of God. Apart from the mediation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is how each of us should feel when we think of the throne of God. We're not welcome there in our sin. God is holy, and he is serious, and he is just about punishing sin. The Pharisee, uh, of course, to justify himself and bring himself before God as he's not considering the holiness of God. Again, remember what I said in the very beginning. Everyone who justifies themselves, what do they have to do? Despise others. And here's the reason. is because their standard cannot be the real standard of God. Cannot be God's word. Otherwise, they wouldn't fit the standard. But have, they have to compare themselves to others. And how do you do that and find yourself justified only if there are those who are not justified because you're not like them? And this is exactly what the Pharisee is doing. And this is what anyone does when it comes to a self-justification, right? Uh, we watch the news and those are the bad people. Those are the bad people. 
we talk about those who don't come to church and they are the bad people. What are we doing then? What is our standard? Because I came to church, that makes me a holy man? No, you're just doing what God called you to do by coming to church. The fact that there are people outside not coming to church does not make you any holier than what you should be. But that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing. They're using those who are not doing, following God's word at all to compare the little they have done and say, I'm justified. Notice that they, he doesn't com uh, compare himself to godly man as Samuel or David or Simeon, but he's comparing himself to the tax collector. And it's interesting that as this man is praying, saying, I'm not like these men, extortioners. As if he was not at the very moment robbing God of the reverence due to his name, due to his temple. He calls uh, that he's not like extortioners as if he was not a great lie that he was telling everyone around that he was this great man, holy, when he knew his sins, uh, the sins that happened in the heart. Uh, he was cheating on the law in that sense. He claims not to be an adulterer when at the very moment he was being unfaithful to the true God, and this is the worst adultery. Uh, the book of Hosea is all about this idea of the covenant that we have with our God and comparing with the covenant we have with our spouses. And it says that the worst adultery is the adultery not with your own spouse, but the adultery that we commit before our God and the covenant he has made with us. And this man is breaking all these things, but compared to this man, of course, he sees himself as righteous. Verse 12, uh, he, he moves on. So he, first he tells us what he is not. Is not all these things, extortioner, unjust, adulterer, he's not like this tax collector. Now he tells us the things that he has actually done. And he mentions two, he says, I fast twice a week and I give tithes, tithes of all that I get. This right here is something that the Catholic Church, the Roman Church will later on call works of supererogation. I know how many are familiar with this, but works of supererogation are when not only you do what is required, but you go beyond. You're earning extra points for your justification. The law of God required fasting once a year. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 16, uh, in the Old Testament, you see that the one day people required to fast was before the Day of Atonement, once a year. And yet, this man is fasting twice a week. And he's praising himself for that. Um, uh, of course, tithe, tithes were required, but the Pharisees were known for being so meticulous in tithing everything, every agricultural uh, produce. Um, they were so rigorous that uh, if, if they weren't sure if someone had already tithed on something and they bought it, they would tithe again. Uh, they were the people, they, if they found a, a, a penny on the ground, they would tithe 10% on that. Somehow they would find a way to tithe 10% of that. Uh, Pharisees were careful with straining their wine while aerating. And the reason for that is because you have these gnats, these little bugs, these little mosquitoes, and sometimes they'll get into the wine, and of course they knew that it was uh, ceremonially defiling to eat insects. So they would make sure that they would uh, take care and, and strain any of those little gnats before they drank the wine. And by doing those things, what are they doing? They're being able to say, I'm righteous. Again. Pharisees had good theology in the sense that they wouldn't claim to be perfect, right? These men are not coming here saying that they are holy. They understood the whole idea of the temple and forgiveness. So 
it, it was a compromise. They knew they were not perfect, but they believed by doing all these other things, they were so good compared to everyone around them that even if they miss something here and there, I'm fasting twice a week. Look how much extra I'm doing. And this is exactly what leads to the doctrine uh, superrogation in the Catholic Church, that a saint is someone who does so much more than how they can share, and you could buy the righteousness of these other saints who can share the extra with you. And that was a great reason why the Reformation started, was because Luther realized in his days that this was the problem of the day. And it's interesting that Carl Truman points out, as he's going through Luther's history, that when Luther first Luther developed his theology throughout the Reformation. And he, when he first started and, and posted the 95 Thesis, Luther at that point, at least at that point, was not necessarily against indulgences. In this sense, he understood that there was a place for demonstrating your true repentance. So the idea here would be, let's say that a, a small child you know, is working and, and doing all these little chores at home and every, you know, give them $5 here and $10 there, for making a little chore uh, around the house, mowing the lawn, whatever it is. And this kid, after a long time, being very diligent, fi saved $500, right? That would be a lot for uh, someone who doesn't really have a job and all that. They save for a long time. That means a lot to them. That's everything they have. And then one day, they're playing outside, and they throw the ball the wrong way. It hits the car. It broke the window. And they're they, they're conscious, just they're, they feel guilty about this, it's terrible. They come to their parents and say, Dad, I, I, this happened, I'm so sorry, I broke the wind, I don't know what to do, I, I try to be careful, but here's $500, it's all that I have, just take it. In that sense, Luther even said, because there was the brokenness of heart and that $500 is just representing that, that emotion, what was actually going on in the heart, that was actually a good way to represent that reality. And Luther at first thought, okay, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe that's what's happening. The reality is, and this is, what, of course, what led to the Reformation and for him to be completely against this in the future was the fact that that's not what that doctrine was at all. Um, indulgences were about people who were doing exactly what the Pharisees are doing here. They could live their life. They could make mistakes. And instead of feeling broken by their sin and seek repentance, they would just Oh, but I can pay this thing, and it pays off for what I did. See what's happening here? That justification coming, you justify yourself by those things, and that it's stopping you from coming to Christ, from coming to a place of true repentance before a holy God. By the way, I'm by no means saying that there's any good thing about indulgences. Uh, just to show you the, the historical development of that doctrine, the point here is that the Pharisee is not broken in his heart, but he is... Um, justifying himself with what he can do. Uh, Jesus later on will say, of course, that he, Jesus didn't necessarily condemn the Pharisees for all those good things that they were doing, the fasting twice a week, nothing wrong with that. Um, tithing on everything, even the garden herbs that they would do. Jesus says in Matthew 23, 23, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the, ma the weightier matters of the law. The problem of the Pharisees is not the good things that they were doing. They could continue doing that, but they should not forget the main purpose of God's law. Uh, in Micah, God is very clear. Will God be pleased by sacrifices and tons of oil, olive oil and all the things they can sacrifice to God? No, has told you, O man, what is good and what is acceptable before the Lord, but to love, to, to act justly, to love mercy, and to act humbly 
walk humbly before thy God. That's what God wanted. And those are the things that they were neglecting. The mercy. There's no mercy toward this tax collector. There's no love. There's just self-righteous. Uh, of course, there's no surplus of righteousness at all. There's no righteousness in this man. But there's a large surplus of self-esteem, which was only working for his condemnation. Um, Jesus says later on, these you ought to have done, the tithing, the deal, and the cumin, and the, and the fasting twice a week, these you should have done, but without leaving the larger moral principles undone. He says in the next verse, 23, 24 of Matthew, he calls them blind guides, and he gives a great picture of what the Pharisees were doing here. Who strains the gnat and swallow a camel. It's a great picture. These would sift, they would go way beyond, not like the tax collector, you're so careful about the gnat, but they would swallow a camel. What's the point of doing that? What's the point of doing that? What God wanted from this Pharisee was not all these extra works, but he just wanted this Pharisee to come with a heart that sought for redemption through the Messiah, the promised one of God. And this is what we see with the tax collector. But the tax collector, verse 13, standing far off, standing far off. Remember, he would not even walk and he didn't even want to get too close to the inner courts, but he stands far off. He understands that he is not worthy of being in the temple of God. He's not worthy of being in that place in the presence of God. He would not even lift his eyes to heaven. We could think that maybe he wouldn't want to lift his eyes because he would see people who maybe had stole from before he came to the temple. Maybe he didn't want to lift his eyes off because he, he would see the Pharisee and, and realize all the things that he should have done and that he had not done. But most of all, by his prayer, we know that he was not lifting up his eyes to heaven because he knew that God knew his heart. And he knew that he was wearing filthy rags of righteousness before the holy God. And he beats his breast. The only, the only other place in the whole Bible where we see this expression beating their breast was people who were watching the crucifixion of Jesus. And after they saw all the torment and all, the, all that had been done to Jesus, they, they beat up their breasts. And this is what this man is saying. He's saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In the original language here, there's a definite article here, the sinner. He singles himself out, the sinner. Sounding like Paul, when Paul writes to Timothy, in 1 Timothy, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, foremost of whom I am. And this is the reality of everyone who looks into their own heart. Why are you the worst sinner? Why are you the sinner? It's because you know your heart. I can only see outside. You can only see other people's outsides, but you know your heart. And this man knew his heart. He was the sinner. And he says, God, he prays to God and says, be merciful to me. A sinner. It's interesting here that this word merciful, the word mercy is found several places in the New Testament, but most of the time it's a different word. The word that we find here in this very form is only found twice in the New Testament. And it's actually, uh, it's in the New Testament, but it's an Old Testament word. I want to put it that way because it's the word hilasmos. And this word is the word for, that is found um, 16 times in the Old Testament, in the translation, the Septuagint, the translation to uh, Greek of the Old Testament. And most of these, uh, the times this word is used is in the, in the books of Exodus and the books of Leviticus. 
and it's to represent the mercy seat. The mercy seat. So you had the Ark of the Covenant, and on top, the lid of that covenant, that's the mercy seat. And the idea of that mercy seat, if you think of the representation of that mercy seat, and this is exactly what this man is thinking. You have God, the very presence of God, and is represented by these two seraphim. Remember, we looked in Isaiah, the seraphim before the throne of God, and they're there. And they're up, representing what is holy, and they're looking down into the Ark of the Covenant. And what is inside the Ark of the Covenant? The law of God, the tablets, the Ten Commandments, uh, some manna. Uh, things change, of course, throughout history. We have a Aaron's staff. And those things are there representing the law of God. So the whole is looking down and all that they see is the law. But what happens when the lamb is slain and the blood is poured on that lid and it covers that lid? Now the whole is looking down and it looks to the law through the blood. That's the word that this man is thinking. What this man is doing as he's saying, have mercy on me is have propitiation on me that would be the word used here have blood on me that's why this man is crying out he's saying the little he understood about the sacrificial system was enough for him to say that i cannot come here on my own righteousness but if you would lord if you would provide for me i cannot provide for myself but if you would propitiate if you would bring blood that would cover my sins i'll find myself righteous in your sight and i'll pray to you and i'll give my life to you and that's what's happening in the heart of this man. He didn't compare himself to others, but he sees himself before a holy God who will not receive anything lesser than the standard of his own holiness, the holiness of Jesus Christ. And this was the problem with the Pharisee. If you look back in history, if you go back to the giving of the law, so the, the passage to that would be, if you go to Exodus chapter 32, or, Levitic, or Deuteronomy chapter 9. Those are parallel passages dealing with the giving of the law. And to summarize that quickly, you, under, you see there when you see the giving of the law is that Moses goes up to this mountain where, again, to, to compare here with this man, this mountain is the very presence of God. And Moses goes up, the people are afraid. Like this man, they're far off. They're seeing this, the thunder and they see the lightning and they don't dare get close to that mountain. Moses, you go. Wait for you here. Moses goes up, receives the law, the Ten Commandments, and tablets, uh, the two tablets, two tables of the law. And what happens as Moses is up there? We know, based on those two parallel passages, that as God had just given the law to Moses, those people were down there worshiping a golden calf because they thought Moses was gone. And they had, to, they had just broken the first two commandments directly. They broke an all, but, but directly they had broken the first two commandments of the law, idolatry, worshiping false gods. So was the giving of the law so that they could be saved by the law? Not at all. The law was received. Moses, God says, I'm going to kill all those people. They had just broken the law I just gave. And Moses intercedes for them, of course. Moses goes down. Moses himself breaks the law that they had broken. Moses goes up back to the mountain and the conclusion of that is of course they're not saved by the law but god now gives moses and this is the whole book of leviticus now god is going to give moses not another law not another way to keep the law but he's going to teach him about the tabernacle he'll say moses the law was given the law was broken here's tablets of stone that will not be broken again but you're going to build a tent 
And then there's a whole book explaining the purpose of that tent. And we know that for us, that tent is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ who came and dwelt among us and died as the sacrifice that atoned ultimately for our sins. But the Pharisee did not understand that. They did not understand the purpose of the law. But they try to find themselves justified by doing the little things here and there of the law. This man, we don't know exactly what his mind, he was thinking of the sacrifices, the tax collector. Maybe he was thinking of Abraham when he says in Genesis 22, God will provide for himself a lamb as he's taking Isaac up to the mountain. There's so many representations. Maybe he thought of how God had provided in the past by giving manna, the bread of heaven, to the people. How God had provided water and how God had provided all kinds of things, even through the sinfulness of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. He's saying, maybe this God can provide for me now. Maybe this God will provide for me. He understood the principle behind the sacrificial system, which is uh, clearly expounded by the author of Hebrews. In Hebrews 9.22, he says, Without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. This blood is what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, as Pastor Fisher elaborated on that this morning. The, we celebrate his blood shed for us. There is blood for us, and we rejoice that there is a blood that was shed for us. Um, Peter, in 1 Peter 1, 2, says this, talks about the sprinkling and washing of his blood as justification. Baptism, the sprinkling, the same way the blood was sprinkled on the people for the purification of the Old Testament, now the sprinkling of the water purifies us, representing the blood of Christ, purifying us from our sins. There is blood for us believers who put our trust in Christ alone. So what is the conclusion of this story? Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And, and here the, the language is very clear, rather than the other meaning, not the other. This man went justified, the other did not go home justified. The lesson here is in the same way, if we come to God with a broken and contrite heart, God will accept us in his son, Jesus Christ. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. This is what we hear time after time in the Gospels, the message of Jesus. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. The book, uh, book of Acts, repent and believe in the Lord and Jesus, Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's the message that we hear. Are you living a life of repentance? This is not just something for your conversion, but we justify ourselves all the time. We came to church. I read my Bible in the morning. I did this. I did that. I'm not as bad. I'm clearly a Christian because I do these things. Are you living a life of repentance? When the Pharisees in John chapter 3 asked John the Baptist, can we be baptized? As they see that John is baptizing people. He says, no, I'm not going to baptize you. Show brood of vipers who has uh, warned you of, of the wrath to come. And then he says, Go bear fruits of repentance. That's what you need to do. It is appropriate, Christian, to be broken over your sin. It's rightly so. It's, it's, it's appropriate. If you think of who God is and his holiness, it is appropriate. Think of David uh, as he's writing Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned. If you love your Lord Jesus Christ, it is appropriate that you live a life of repentance, a life of a broken heart where you can come to God and pour your heart to him 
knowing that he will provide for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is justification? We'll finish with what is justification. And there's no reason to reinvent the wheel here when uh, the Westminster Assembly has done such a good job defining to us justification. Justification is an act of God's free grace. So the first thing here is an act. By definition, justification is a forensic concept. Forensic meaning, the, the picture here is that someone is in a trip, you're in a courtroom, and you're guilty, and God is declaring his verdict, and his verdict is that you're righteous or that you're guilty. So justification is what happens when you put your trust in Christ. Is that is, so, so justification is not God making you holy. Justification is God making you righteous. There's a difference between the two. We're, being, we're made holy through sanctification and ultimately glorification. But the justification aspect of our salvation is a forensic idea. It's not your righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ imputed for you, imputed to you, as God now sees you through that blood, through Christ's sacrifice. And uh, when we think, so, so it's, it's a declaration that's taking place. God is declaring you a saint. In his eyes, you're perfectly pure and clean because of what Christ has accomplished for you at the cross. Um, it is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. This is what we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. We're justified by grace, and this is why Jeremiah declares the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the Lord of righteousness, because in him that all the people of God, before Christ, after Christ, from all the ends of the earth, would receive their righteousness is from the righteousness giver, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the Bible talks about three different imputations, as you think of this idea of the righteousness of God imputed to us. Of course, all of us have received the imputation that comes with Adam, right? Um, the sin of Adam, his guilt and his condemnation uh, were laid on our account. So all of us are born guilty of Adam's sin. We've been born, have been conceived in sin. David prays in Psalm uh, 51. And in that sense, we don't give anything to Adam, but what was in Adam is imputed to us. But in Christ, there is a double imputation. Our filthy rags, all our misery of our sin is put on Christ, and he took, he bore in the, pray, the, the weight of that sin at the cross because God is just, and he wouldn't just ignore sin, but there has to be a payment. And he did that as he took your filthy rags to the cross and he gives you the righteous robe of his righteousness which includes all his perfect obedience his passive obedience his active obedience as you put your faith in him a double imputation um, he was treated as if he had sinned our sin and his righteousness is imputed to us um, he who knew no sin was made sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. As far as this is from the West, our sins are removed from us. They have been cast into the depths of the sea, Micah describes in the Old Testament. And again, all these things are by faith. All these things are taking place only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from true Christianity and the true gospel, all systems of religion will fall into the category of works, uh, exactly like the Pharisees. Um, justification is often earned by something 
that the worship does for God, whether that's work, whether that's a sacrament or a religious ceremony. Uh, you can think of charity and altruism. You can think of devotion to certain lifestyles or devotion to a certain political cause, environmental campaigns, even loving others. Uh, all those things, anything can become an idol in this sense. And every time we start comparing ourselves, we fall into this trap. Christianity uh, is a religion of divine accomplishment rather than human achievement. And, and this is what you see, the contrast everywhere. To put it in a more simple way, all the religions of the world will say that the good people go to the good place and the bad people go to the bad place. Christianity is the one that will say that the bad people, there's a way for them to go to the good place through the Lord Jesus Christ and praise him for that. So, as we get to a conclusion here, I want us to think of the three Beatitudes that Jesus starts his sermon in the Sermon on the Mount. The first one, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Then he says, blessed are those who mourn. Think of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Remember that if self-righteousness will always lead you to put people down, here Jesus is giving the opposite direction. Someone who is poor in spirit, someone who lives life not according to what people are thinking. You don't fear man, but you think of your life before God. You will find yourself poor in spirit. You will mourn over that, and you will become a meek person. Because you're not looking around to find other people's sins, but you understand the weight of your own sin. That makes you meek. You're not putting people down. If anything, you see you as the lowest. And that's why Jesus ends this with a very simple principle. And that's how we end our sermon this morning as well. For everyone, this is the second half of verse 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In the context of this parable, exalted here, exaltation it, it, it's, it's a synonym here to justification. Remember, that one man was left, was justified. The tax collector went home justified. He went home exalted. That's what it means. So the idea here that Jesus is saying that everyone who exalts himself, someone who lives a life of putting themselves up and thinking of their own righteousness, that person will be humble, meaning that person will be brought low at the end. But the one who humbles himself, the one who is poor in spirit, the one who mourns, the one who is meek, that one is justified. That one at the very end will be exalted. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And in the same context where Jesus says this, he says, um, the idea here is that if you come to the Lord Jesus Christ with a true repentant heart like this tax collector, you will be accepted. For there is blood for those who come to him in faith. Let's pray. Lord, what a glorious reality to meditate upon the salvation you have provided for your saints. Lord, we thank you that you have called us out of the world to be your church, to be the people who have turned from our sins, who have realized that we are not enough in ourselves, but that we need a righteousness which is outside ourselves, the righteousness that you can provide for us in your Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful work of redemption 
that you have accomplished. We thank you for you sending your son. We thank you for your son did at the cross, accomplishing salvation, forgiveness of sins for us. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit who applies all these realities into our hearts and to our lives uh, from the moment of our new birth until the time where we'll be finally reunited with Christ and enjoy the full glory of the salvation that you have accomplished for us. Lord, we rejoice over these truths and we pray that you would humble ourselves, Lord, to be broken over our sins. Help us to understand that it is appropriate to sorrow over our sins, to live a life of repentance and to come to you in faith, knowing that in you we have all the strength we need to fight our sins and to find righteousness, um, not of our own, in, our, in your sight. We worship you and you praise you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.